0: Interested in the the beginnings of the church, you know, I think looking at the creed is a great way of, of getting into church history and really seeing where the faith kind of came together.
1: In the scripture, the way it presents discernment is actually the skill that you develop where you're able to identify goodness. And what was surprising to me is that is much the way we use the language of discernment outside of the church.
2: The real difference, I would say, like what patriarchy teaches versus what we should believe is that what they believe about the nature of men and women, that there is something fundamentally different about authority and submission between men and women. And that's not just like within particular relationships, but men and women in general. This is their nature.
1: What are the duties required in the Ninth Commandment? The duties required in the Ninth Commandment are the preserving and promoting of truth between man and man,
0: The gospel never tells us something to do. The gospel tells us about something that's been done.
1: Hi, welcome to Theology Gals. I am Colleen Sharp and Rachel Miller is my co-host. And this week we are going to play the rest of our interview with John Fonville. If you did not hear last week's interview... I would suggest going back and listening to that. That focused uh, a lot on the gospel. And this week we continue that discussion where we focus a little bit more on legalism and antinomianism. I'm glad you brought up Federal Vision and the Shepherd controversy because we just did a— a um, two-part series on that, Rachel and I did. And one of the things that we talked about, and it's been of discussion recently, is within Federal Vision, they redefined the covenant of works. Um, Doug Wilson recently, he said, oh, I don't deny the covenant of works. But then he goes on to redefine it and call it a gracious covenant. And there's so many implications of messing with what is true about the covenants.
0: Yeah, exactly exactly um as soon as you you refer to the uh covenant of works and if your listeners aren't familiar with this genesis chapter 2 verses 15 through 17 is like a really good place to go to get the, the essence of it then the day that you of this you shall surely die the implication being if you don't eat of it you're going to live and you're going to have eternal life do this and live um uh, as soon as you have these category mistakes and you say, well, this is gracious. No, this isn't gracious. This is pure law. And God, and, and, and then people say, well, but, you know, man, man is earning something. And God is sovereign. And It's like, well, no, God is sovereign. And he has the right to set forth what the terms that he wants to set forth. And if God says, you're going to earn this then you're going to earn it. Right. Um uh, God is the one, he is, he's a lawgiver, but we can't confuse uh, a covenant of law and say, well, it's gracious. No, because there's no sin before the fall. The, the grace assumes sin. The, there's no sin. We have to be very careful here because prior to the fall, Genesis 131, God pronounced everything very good. Uh, That's what I love about Reformed theology. It doesn't begin with the fall of man, but it actually begins with the wonder and glory and goodness of creation. Um, There's no sin before the fall, and if there's no sin before the fall, there's no need for grace before the fall. And... um, uh, yeah we just have to be very careful that we don't make these uh very serious category mistakes um you know because what happens is if we remove the covenant of works we've removed the foundation of the gospel because there's nothing to be imputed to us of course then <laughs> new perspective on paul folks and, T. and other people they deny him the doctrine of imputation of Christ's obedience. Even when I was at the Master Seminary, now the professor has since been uh, released. I, I don't think he's, he's no longer there. But when I was there, I had two professors that denied the active of obedience of Christ and denied the imputation of the active of obedience of Christ, and they said that this was not taught. But Uh, You know, God is sovereign and he is able to set the terms. And so uh, if he says this is the exchange rate, this is the exchange rate. Man will learn from God what God says he will learn. And this is a do this and live covenant of law. And this is why the gospel is so important, because Paul says in Galatians 4 that Christ was born of woman. He was born under the law, and he was born under the law because he was the great perfect law keeper, he's the only human who has ever lived and fulfilled Matthew 5, Sermon on the Mount. He's fulfilled all righteousness. Um, he's come to keep the law, not destroy it. And so, apart from Christ, the, the last Adam who has come to undo what the first Adam and we in Adam did as our federal head, we have no hope of righteousness because it's, you know, I've taught my church many times and they know this well. It's not enough to be forgiven. Forgiveness wipes our slate clean, but that won't get us to to the kingdom. Jesus made it very clear that entrance into the kingdom requires a righteousness that surpasses none of the scribes and Pharisees. You have to have a, perfect righteousness, which is what? It's perfect obedience to everything that the law requires. Um, and, you know, so if we remove the covenant of works, we have removed uh, the foundation of the gospel. You know, how do we preach the gospel? Well, uh, we, we preach it by saying that Christ himself has fulfilled the law on our behalf, because without, you know, without the covenant of works, uh, that that is that is the pillar of the gospel. The uh, the gospel would crumble before our feet. Uh, Genesis chapters one through three forms the essential foundation for the gospel, especially because it reveals to us the covenant of works. Um, and it teaches us about, you know, the covenant of works teaches us about the perfect work of Christ, and it, and when it does that, that He has kept for us every jot and tittle perfectly, and thought word indeed. Uh, it bolsters our assurance of salvation. So if if you make if you conflate law and gospel and make the covenant of works gracious, you destroy. The foundation of assurance for believers, and uh, these are important things, and we have to get them right. Thank
2: you, John. That was very interesting to hear you talk about uh, the relationship of the law and the gospel, and the, the centrality of the gospel in our lives. And a little earlier, you you mentioned and talked a little bit about the danger and confusing law and gospel, and and why that's such a an issue for us. Um, I was wondering if you could. Talk some you mentioned antinomianism we've mentioned you know legalism and nomism some could you define those terms for us and and how it relates to our the discussion of law and gospel and maybe you know give us some examples of practically how we would see these around us
0: yeah sure um well let's uh, let's start with the antinomian uh antinomianism first you know, ever since the Reformation, there were two reactions that uh, the Roman Catholic Church and other people, too, uh, made against recovering the gospel. One was legalism or nomism. We'll come back to that. One was antinomianism, which is what they always accuse us of, the Protestants of. You know, so what is antinomianism? Well, anti against gnomianism, namas, law, you're against the law. Uh, so the core of antinomianism is is rejecting the the abiding validity of the moral law, um, and this isn't something new. Uh, I'll come to a couple of examples in a minute. Just a little history lesson, you know, back in the Reformation in the 1500s with Martin Luther. Martin Luther actually coined the term antinomian in his critique because there were some people that uh, concluded, well, if, you know, for saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, well, then we don't need to talk about the moral law at all. And so Luther himself he strongly reacted against that. And, uh, for example, in his larger catechism, he taught the substance of what Philip Melanchthon later would call the third use of the law. Um, and, you know, if you uh, read through uh, his Commentary on Galatians, which I did with um, a historical scholar from uh, uh, Cambridge who, who teaches at Gordon Conwell. He used to teach at Gordon Conwell here in Jacksonville. We read it. We read. We read through it together. And I said, you know, I said, it's amazing how many times in this uh, in his commentary that he's actually referring uh, to the third use of the law and. It was a fascinating study with this historical scholar, but anyway, um, you know the this. The, so Luther he fought against this. Um, so the the fact is, you know, when we look at the New Testament letters in the New Covenant, uh, there are imperatives. They come after the. The therefore, and you know, there's always a joke, what's the, there? you ask the question, what's the therefore, therefore? <laughs> uh, well, the therefore, what follows the therefore is our imperatives. And the imperatives come to us, not as I mentioned previously about Graham the where so many evangelicals do this. Uh, they preach naked law. They divorce imperatives from the gospel and just preach us naked law. The Bible never gives us imperatives apart from the gospel. But the imperatives always follow the gospel as a consequence of saving faith, uh, and Paul makes it clear that these imperatives are not antecedent conditions that we have to obey to be saved. You know, because we do have to guard against turning the third use of the law into a covenant of works, which says, you know, do this and live, or if you don't, well, you know, you're going to be damned. I mean, that's not the third use of the law. It's just a Heidelberg Catechism that teaches us these categories. It's guilt, grace, it's gratitude. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm driven by the grace of God to express my thankfulness in obedience to what is required of me as a Christian. And the, the wonderful good news is in the New Covenant, what is required of me, what God demands of me, he freely gives. And so it's not that I obey to become what I'm not. I'm obeying because I'm obeying out of who I've been made in Christ. Uh, but in Antinomian, um, they don't see it like this, and they deny this third use of the law. They deny the consequent necessity of good works in the believer's life of obedience. But new covenant obedience is the logical and moral and necessary consequence of God's saving grace. Uh, Paul is very clear the reformed confessions are very clear the Heidelberg Catechism again is very clear the 39 articles in, in my church very clear that those who are united to Christ by the Holy Spirit through by grace through faith alone necessarily produce the fruit of their salvation uh, in good works good works is the evidence of their salvation and there's obedience to these imperatives. The law of Christ that Paul calls it in the book of Galatians, God's law comes to me not as a threat. There's therefore therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So when I disobey as a believer, I'm not condemned. I can be chastened, but that's, that's out of love and discipline. But, but, but I'm finally free. I'm free from the curse of the law. I'm free from condemnation. Uh, and I'm free to obey these, uh, these moral imperatives that are given to me as a consequence of my saving relationship with Christ. One of the, uh, one of the ways and I try to illustrate it for the people in our church is uh, with the, this idea of ice skating. Um, Uh, if you're going to ice skate on a lake uh, in Minnesota in the middle of winter, you know, you're probably going to be pretty safe, but sometimes people think, well, I might be skating on thin ice, right? And um, many, many believers live their life like this. They think they're skating on thin ice because they don't have a foundation of justification. Therefore they don't have obedience because they're afraid they're living in fear. But if, if you're, utterly assured that the this lake is at least 10 feet thick of ice you can not only skate on it you can put your truck out there on it and do donuts and and just <laughs> have a wonderful day of having fun at, at this frozen lake because you have a firm foundation you're free to skate now and that's what the doctrine of justification does it provides us this assurance foundation our union with christ that. No, we're free. We're free from the punishment of the law. We're free to obey these imperatives. But antinomianism, uh, it 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 doesn't work like that. It it denies this that there's any abiding validity to the moral law. And really, antinomianism is an overrealized eschatology. It's 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 you're you're trying to claim for your current state of sanctification more than what you're going to have, and. You need the instruction of God's law to help you and to help guide your gratitude, not for life, but from life. So that's antinomianism. I'll just say this, by the way, I've, I, I have been accused many, many times of being an antinomian. I, I, I'm not. <laughs> I'll just throw it out there. Um, here.
2: We get, yeah. get accused
0: all the time. <laughs> yeah. It's great. Isn't it? Mm. Um Uh, So that's antinomianism, uh, legalism, gnomism, or neo nomianism This was the other uh, false reaction to the Reformation, uh, recovery of the gospel. Uh, So what is gnomism, right? What is Neo Neo means new, gnomism, nomos law, a new law. Gnomism, legalism, is simply the, the teaching that in order to be saved, we have to obey the law as the ground, or as the instrument of our justification or our salvation, the whole package. Uh, gnomists, uh, legalists, they're not satisfied with the Reformation doctrine that new life, regeneration, because regeneration is the, it's the starting place, it's the origin of all ethics and morality. That's what Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36, and the Promised New Covenant says it is. Uh, they are not satisfied with the doctrine of regeneration, new life, and true faith. This given by the Holy Spirit through the gospel that necessarily produces good works as fruit and evidence of our justification of our salvation. They don't like They don't think it's sufficient. Um, and so, you know, during the Reformation or during people today, Gnomists, legalists, they seek to make works, obedience to God's law, either the instrument or the ground, the the legal basis alongside Christ's obedience for our salvation. And uh, both of these errors pervert the gospel. Both of them misunderstand the gospel. Both of them, antinomianism and legalism, are really two sides of the same coin. Um, you know, uh, antinomianism separates justification and sanctification. Antinomianism uh, it denies the consequent necessity of good works, which faith necessarily produces. Uh, Titus, chapter two, verses eleven through fourteen, Paul makes this very clear. Uh, and I wrote in great detail about this in my thesis. So I don't have time to go into it, but he tells us in verse 11 that the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. And the all men goes back to verses 1 through 10, talking about the different groups of people that he was referring to as universalism. Um, but he says the grace of God is continually teaching us, continually instructing us to deny ungodliness, and to deny worldly desires and to live on the positive side, sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age. The grace of God, he says, is continually teaching us to be looking for the blessed hope and the hearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. And then he says, and Christ gave himself for us, the purpose of his substitutionary redemptive work on the cross. He gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good works, zealous for good deeds. It doesn't get any clearer than that. Um, And uh, I don't know how an antinomian reads that, actually, but uh, Paul makes it very clear there. But then a legalist. Uh, a gnomist they make obedience to the law you know our good works necessary for salvation as an antecedent condition that we have to meet uh paul in galatians 3 21 as he's uh condemning the false gospel of the judaizers he says look if there was a law given that could give that would give life god would have given it but in other words there's no law that can give life You. You can't use God's moral law as a means of attaining life. Um, and so uh, uh, good works, So obedience to the law uh, is seen as uh, the means for justification or for sanctification. Uh, maybe we can talk about the, the sanctification uh, part because I think that gets really confused. Uh in the evangelical church today and even in the reform churches they confuse it but um but, uh, is that helpful is that uh, what you're looking at? yes yeah. yes
2: absolutely um i was just i was going to add you know one of the things that we hear in talking about justification and sanctification in these discussions is that you know because we're uh, you know, descended from the the Reformation because we hold to justification by faith alone. That that's that's what we're talking about good works. That good works aren't necessary for our justification. But then there is this backdoor attempt to bring in justification by saying, well, but our good works are part of our final salvation according to God. And I'm, I'm thankful that you made the point that our good works are never added to christ's work for our salvation in the sense of that they bring about our salvation right they are certainly the the result right they are the
0: right, fruit right yeah yeah but, yeah Yeah. exactly the way i teach our church right and this just comes right out of our our own confessions in the 39 articles uh or the heidelberg catechism the three forms of unity or the westminster standards because they all shared together back then it wasn't that you know, they were all independent of each other. Thomas Cranmer actually talked a lot to Calvin <laughs> and he was influenced by Martin Bootser. I mean, these guys talked together. They shared common confessions. The way I teach our people is this, is um, good works are never instrumental in our salvation. They are only evidential. And and, 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 and also that Good works, our obedience, is not—it's uh, not the ground by which we are finally pronounced justified. And that's you know, the Heidelberg Catechism at this point is so helpful. It says, well, why can our good works not be uh, at least part of our righteousness before God? And the answer is very simple: it's because the righteousness that God requires must be perfect throughout. And our righteousness, our works, our good works, even as believers are still tainted with sin. And so that the only reason they are made acceptable, and Calvin has a wonderful discussion of this in his um, uh, his institutes, But he says this, and I'll just summarize it very quickly, paraphrase it. He says, you know, how does a good work come to be acceptable before God? He says, only by pardon. And he's talking about justification in the context. And he says that when we come into union with Christ, not only we, but our good works also are justified. He says, so that whatever sin is left in them, the, 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 what is tainted before God is buried in the purity of Christ. And that's why our good works are acceptable. That's why we can have a good work. Um, but, but this is a big deal. And, and you mentioned the back door of sanctification. We have to be very wary of people who want to turn the doctrine of perseverance into a covenant of works. We have to be very wary about people who want to make sanctification a work that we do. Um, you know, I'm I'm in the Anglican Church, but I have a very I study all the Reformed confessions all the time. The Westminster Shorter Catechism is very clear. Uh, on what, uh, you know, uh, repentance is and good works are and uh, what sanctification is. You know, sanctification is a saving grace of God. It's the work of God's grace. Um, but uh, anyway, my point is, is we have to be careful not to let legalism creep in through the back door of sanctification. Okay. Uh, Michael Horton has written some really good, helpful stuff, and you know, this might help the listeners. Uh, his book, God of Promise, he has a chapter entitled New Covenant Obedience. And he talks about how the impression is sometimes given that while the law cannot justify, it can sanctify us. Mm-hmm. And he talks about how we have to be careful to distinguish law and gospel and justification, but then we confuse them in our treatment of the Christian life. And so I mean, often it's, it's given the impression that, you know, uh, those who are justified can get strength, he says, from the law for their homeward journey. But that's not the case because we don't sanctify ourselves any more than we justify or glorify ourselves. That's a work of the Holy Spirit. It's a work of of grace. The fruit of sanctification is the evidence. It's our good works. But, you know, the law in all of its various uses, the, the law's basic function never changes. It commands. That's his office. The law never does more than that. It commands. So if it's the Ten Commandments, if it's Paul's teaching on the fruit of the Spirit, if it's, you know, five steps to a happier life or whatever it is, uh, it can tell us what to do, but it cannot, as Horton says, it cannot animate our hearts to actually motivate our hands to actually do it. And so this is why obedience is the fruit of the Holy Spirit, which is what Jeremiah 31 talks about. Uh, The Holy Spirit works through the gospel, not only to create faith, but also to grow faith. And the Holy Spirit strengthens and matures our faith and produces this fruit through the continual teaching of the the gospel. Uh, It's exactly what the Apostle Paul teaches in the whole book of Titus. He begins his book, Titus one verse one, the gospel, the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness. And so the church is this miraculous, divine creation of the Holy Spirit in the regular teaching of the gospel, the pattern of sound doctrine that he talks about in that letter that's what yields godliness. That's what yields the fruit. It's the gospel which is according to godliness, and so we don't separate justification and sanctification. We don't confuse justification and sanctification. We teach both. They're both uh, the, the the double benefit of Christ of our union with Christ. It's the double benefit of uh, of the covenant of grace, justification. And sanctification are given to us uh, in salvation, and um, these these are these are categories that you just don't really hear, and uh, they're important categories that we have to have so that we don't, you know, we don't remodel the gospel.
1: I appreciate you talking about um, sanctification because I think that's one of the areas where there's often a lot of confusion, and uh, I think just let was it last week that Rachel and I even quoted the Westminster Shorter Catechism on mm-hmm. both justification, sanctification, sanctification, because I find those so helpful. Uh, could you yeah. uh, talk about how antinomianism and gnomism pervert the gospel?
0: Yeah. Well, <laughs> um, you know, I, I, just alluded to, let me give you an example. And so we don't just talk in theory. And I think a lot of believers, especially our evangelical listeners will, They can identify with this. Uh, When we talk about anti it separates justification and sanctification. Both justification and sanctification are gifts given to us through our union with Christ in salvation. And so it's a whole Christ that we receive um, uh, in in salvation. Um, But there's, uh, there's a lot of confusion in the church about what repentance is. I talked about repentance this past Sunday, because in the Anglican Church this past Sunday, it was the first Sunday of Epiphany. Epiphany just simply means manifestation. It's talking about the good news of Christ's manifestation of his saving work and grace to the nations. Uh, It's the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant to the nations. It's actually a wonderful um, uh, gospel-centered way to look at it. Anyway... The, the readings for the first ending of Epiphany took up the baptism of our Lord from Matthew 3, Isaiah 42, and Acts 10, with the preaching. Peter's preaching the gospel to Cornelius, Cornelius and his household to the Gentiles. It's a powerful, powerful uh, uh, couple passages there. On, uh, But but at the core of it, it's talking about Jesus' baptism and repentance. And so I talked about repentance this past Sunday in our church and, and, and was helping our church understand repentance because there's a doctrine that's been floating around the church for a long time called the carnal Christian. Um, and that's, you know, that's where uh, John MacArthur and the Lordship Salvation people reacted to that, and that was equally wrong, but that's for another day. But the point is, is this, this carnal Christian says you can, you can have Jesus as your Savior, But they ask, but have you really made him Lord of your life yet? Um, This is a perversion of uh, this antinomianism. This is a a separation of justification and sanctification. It's a perversion of the gospel. The first thing that we say about that is we don't make Christ anything. In in our Reformed churches, with our Reformed confessions, we all confess that Christ is our private priest and king. He is our Lord. Um, and, uh, you know, we have categories for the lordship of Christ. It's called, he's our private priest and king. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, Let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus. be crucified both Lord and Christ. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Uh, so, uh, again, I've referred to Michael Horn a couple times, but he's just he's so helpful. He says this, you know, Jesus rules to save and he saves to rule. He doesn't save anybody. That he doesn't rule as king. Um, and so Walter Marshall, in his book *The Gospel Mystery of Sanctification*, which everybody should read, but you have to read the updated English version by uh, edited by Bruce McRae. I read the the original English, old English, and <laughs> it's it's, uh, it's it's hard, um, but. Walter Marshall, uh, he said, "You know, Christ is not divided. You cannot have half a Christ. You cannot divide salvation. You cannot have the forgiveness of Christ without the holiness of Christ." So this is exactly right. You don't trust Christ for the forgiveness of the guilt of your sins, but not only, but not also trust Christ for salvation from the filth of your sins. That's not genuine saving faith, as as um, uh, Marshall says. That's a presumption. It's a terrible presumption. Um, you know, he says, you cannot truly trust Christ for true salvation if you do not want to be made holy and righteous in your life. When God gives you salvation through Christ, holiness will will be one part of that salvation. True gospel faith makes you cry out earnestly for God to save you, not only from hell, but from sin as well. And then he quotes Psalm 5110, create in me a clean heart of God and renew a right spirit within me. So we don't, we don't separate justification and sanctification. We receive a whole Christ in salvation. And um, unfortunately, this carnal Christian idea, it, it still is pervasive in much of evangelicalism and it even, infect, it even infects Reformed churches, but we don't confess that. We, we confess a whole Christ and we confess the double benefit that we receive from Christ. Um, and He not only justifies us, but He sanctifies us by grace through faith. And that work of that ongoing work of sanctification by the Holy Spirit—that gracious work—it results in the the fruit of faith. And uh, so, these are. Is that helpful? Is that? Uh, yes. getting Know where you're. Yeah.
2: Very helpful. So, how can we avoid falling into either of these errors? How can we protect against antinomianism and legalism in our lives and in our churches?
0: Well, that's a good question. That's the constant battle, isn't it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, uh, we, have, we, have, we have to walk the, the tightrope, we have to walk down the middle uh, and not fall off to either error. I was talking with a person, you know, just go back just for a second, I'll come back to that, but just for a second. I was talking with a person and they told me that they truly are an antinomian and that they were proud of it. And I tried as hard as I could to show them that there are consequent (laughs) necessity of holiness, and there are imperatives that follow the therefores that they're not suggestions. Um, uh, but, But really, when it comes down to it, there are not a lot of what I would consider real, true antinomians. I mean I've I've run into a couple. I've t- I've talked to a few people in the so-called grace movement, kind of it kind of has some of these tendencies that you're you're no longer a sinner, you're just a saint. They deny similar use to set the cutter and things like that. But for the most part, I don't I don't see a lot of people saying, Well, I don't want to obey and I don't want to live for Christ. What I do find uh, overwhelmingly, because pastoring the church, you know, every week (laughs) I have to show up, um, uh, people who want to obey, but constantly fail. Um, and they, they're, they need motivation. And so, you know, how do we avoid the errors of, um, legalism? And how do we avoid the areas of license? Uh, The answer is very simple. We need to know the gospel. I mean, this is what the Apostle Paul says. I mentioned to it earlier in uh, 1 Corinthians 6. He says constantly to the the sinning believers in Corinth, do you not know? Do you not know? You know, your problem is that you don't know something. The, the, this is what the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 6. Uh, well, shall we continue to sin? The grace may abound. He says, of course not. God forbid, may Of course, of course not. Why? Because you've been united with Christ. You've been buried with Christ. You have been raised with Christ. You are a new creation you're part of the new heavens and the earth to come now already the, the age to come has broken in upon your life and you're no longer part of this old age you don't understand the gospel uh, and so all paul does is continue to remind the romans he reminds the corinthians he reminds the people of creed in, in in the book of titus in every chapter in chapter one chapter two chapter three he brings them back to the gospel, and then he shows them how that fleshes out. The problem is, is that a legalist, a nomist, right, um, they, want to, they want to remodel the gospel. They, they don't believe that being justified by grace through faith in Christ alone is, is sufficient also for sanctification. And so, so they remodel the gospel and they say you know if you want to be truly acceptable to god you have to believe in christ but you also have to you have to live a righteous life as a condition it's kind of a conditional faith and that that trusting in god or christ for salvation is not the primary way that you get acceptance with god in their view you have to keep the law and if you keep the law you know you have the right to believe in christ you have the right to have assurance of faith and so they you know, why do they remodel the gospel? Because they think that the doctrine of salvation by works will compel people to live holy lives. But what it actually does is the exact opposite. But what we're striving to do is to give people the real gospel because, uh, again, Michael Horton in his book, God of Promise, and new covenant obedience has a Wonderful illustration of how this works. He talks about when you go on a sailboat and you go sailing. And he says, look, you're in the sailboat, and you have the sail up, and you have everything perfect, and you're out in the middle of the ocean. And he said, but you're not moving because there's no wind. You have to have wind in your sail." And he says, "Look, you can have a perfect foundation of morality, which is the sailboat, and you can have the sail up and everything in place. But if you don't have the wind blowing, you're not going to move. And it's the gospel that puts the wind in our sails that motivates us. That's what Paul says, as I read from Titus two: the grace of God is constantly instructing my heart." John, deny this ungodliness, deny those worldly desires from your fallen flesh and live sensibly and righteously and godly in this present age. Be looking, set your hope fully on the coming of Christ, who has redeemed you to free you from lawlessness and to make you zealous, to pursue holiness, to do good works, Uh, not to gain favor but because you now have faith. And um, so every day, what does the Christian do? Every day we die to ourselves and we live to Christ by faith. We die to ourselves. That's repentance. We live to Christ. That's faith. We look to Christ. And so repentance, you know, it's not just this one time gift but as Martin Luther in his 95 Theses says, you know, when our Lord Jesus said repent, He meant that the whole life, the whole of the Christian life, should be repentance. It's not just this one-time act, but it's an ongoing reality throughout our life. And repentance, then, is this saving grace. It's this gift that the Holy Spirit gives to us that was promised to us in Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36. I'll remove your heart of flesh, and I'll give you a a, a remove your heart of stone and i'll give you a heart of flesh and i will put my spirit within you and cause you you know cause you to walk in my commandments and be careful to obey my statutes and this is the promise that we have in the gospel and uh so i you know my answer is how do we avoid both errors we need to know the gospel and we need to constantly dwell on it and um that's what protects us from all the errors.
1: I think one of the things that drives um, some of the gnomism out there is this fear that, well, if we don't put threats with the gospel, then people are just going to be lazy and they're going to be empty nomads, basically. So is, is that what's going to happen? I mean, if we say, well, the, we're justified by faith alone and we're not adding any threats and putting f- the fear in people that if they don't do something, they, you know, they're going to fall away or whatever. If they're not yeah. good enough, then maybe they aren't really a Christian. Cause that's, that's the other thing. Even people that believe in perseverance of the saints will, you know, question someone's salvation if there's not sufficient good works. So is, is that what it's going to cause? I guess is the question that people are not going to seek obedience.
0: Yeah, well, that, that's always been the charge, right? Ever since the 1500s, that's, that's been the charge. that Protest, The Protestant doctrine of justification by grace or faith in Christ alone, it, it, it doesn't promote holiness. But again, uh, we, you know, the union with Christ, we receive the double benefit of Christ. We receive justification and sanctification which the sanctification is not our good works that we do. We do not sanctify ourselves. The good works that we do are the evidence that we are being sanctified by the Holy Spirit. And both that justification and sanctification come to us by grace, through faith, in Christ alone, through the gospel. Um, Because in the covenant of grace, God gives the ability to obey the imperatives found in scripture um, fear is a motivator but it's a bad one uh, guilt is a motivator but it is a bad one it's crippling both are crippling there was nothing uh, you, know, you just we go, again we go back to the garden uh, Adam and Eve had, they were, they, were, they were eaten alive in their consciences by guilt. And what did that guilt motivate them to do? Hide. What did it produce? Fear. What did the fear produce in them? Run away from God and try to cover themselves up with their own fig leaves of self-justification. It motivated them, but it was all the wrong motivation to do all the wrong things. It wasn't until God spoke this word of promise to them that their conscience were calmed and comforted. And then they began to express their faith later on in the chapter then into, you know, uh, as the story unfolds. So um, when we, when, I'm, very, I'm deeply troubled by, uh, we'll just say it like this, famous uh, evangelical celebrity pastors and authors, conference speakers who have a very big platform who talk about the gospel, uh, they call them gospel threats or gospel imperatives or the gospel largely taken uh, has gospel warnings. Uh, the gospel threatens with judgment in a large, uh, uh, largely speaking, largely consider. I'm, I'm deeply troubled by that uh, because that's not correct. Um, the gospel is pure promise, and as Herman Boving says in his poem that he's written, uh, there is no threatening there isn't there isn't there's no condemnation in the gospel there's no judgment in the gospel the gospel is pure promise um and in the covenant of grace yes there are there are threatenings as well as promises in the covenant of grace read the book of hebrews there's warnings there are warning passages there are Two ways to relate to God in the covenant of grace an outward relation and an inward relation through union with Christ. And if you're just outwardly related, but you're not vitally united to Christ, yeah, you better heed these warnings. Um, but largely or broadly speaking of making the gospel largely defined versus strictly defined, you don't find largely and strictly laid out as categories within the gospel. You don't find it in the canons of Dort, to which some of these people refer to, and you don't find it in scripture. Um, the, when the canons of Dort, for example, where they refer to um, the, uh, uh, heading 5, paragraph 14, um, they said, well, largely or broadly, but that the canons of Dort are simply means in the covenant of grace not the gospel. It, it means the covenant of grace. Um, but but when you, So when you distinguish largely and strictly within the gospel itself, it's confusing at best and it's neo nomian at worst. And it destroys believer's assurance. And I deal with it all the time in my church. When people hear this, they go to these big mega conferences they hear these celebrity pastors give these warning passages and say, see, the gospel threatens, you better, you better shape up. And they come back and I have to sit down with them and I have to work them. I have to personally as a pastor walk them through these things and I do it all the time. Uh, And that's not an understatement. I have been working with one uh, particular believer in our church uh, for the past eight years And there are others who I could mention who I've been working with that have been crippled by thinking that somehow the gospel is, behold, I bring you good news of great joy. God's going to damn you to hell. I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's crazy what is taught out there. But with all these antinomian controversies that we are told is happening in the church, I think they're really quite rare, um, and I think really there those who are sounding this alarm that may not be an alarm are really factually themselves and the Onomians themselves. Uh, but fear is not a good; it is not a good motivating uh, motivation for the Christian life. Nothing. Uh, John Calvin says it like this in the Institutes there's nothing more notable or glorious in the church than the ministry of the gospel and he is quoting and alluding to 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 6 where Paul says it's the ministry of ex nihilo creation it's the ministry of life and righteousness Um, and nothing will motivate you more been receiving the comfort weekend and week out in a church where you receive the gospel from the pulpit and you receive the gospel from the baptismal font and you receive the gospel from the sacraments of the Lord's table uh, where you are given the body and blood of Christ as you partake by faith the Holy Spirit unites you to the whole Christ and assures your heart with that a neon sign, whether it be baptism or the Lord's Supper. It's like a neon sign flashing. This is good news, good news. What you just heard proclaimed to you from the pulpit is confirmed and strengthened and assured to you by the Holy Spirit. This is true for you. Take and eat and be assured that the Father's favor is upon you uh, the, through these visible gospels that we have in the sacraments the, the, there's no greater joy. The highlight of my week is to go to Christ's visible church and receive his gifts to, to receive his means of grace, which is just simply God, the Holy spirit delivering Christ and all of his saving benefits to me, assuring my heart of what my own heart cannot assure itself of that you are my beloved son, you know, and you, I'm well pleased in, uh, What a gift the gospel is. There's no greater motivation than that. Thank you. That's
2: very encouraging. Tying into that, and and I know you've kind of touched on this, how would you say then, in response, how does the gospel encourage us as believers to good works and to righteousness?
0: Yeah, how does it do it? Well, um, I think it's helpful to look at the Apostle Paul and just, you know, in the book of Titus and to see what he says. Uh, in chapter three, um, he he gives imperatives. He says, you know, remind the believers, be subject to rulers, to authorities, be obedient, be ready for every good work. And then he says, malign no one, be peaceable, gentle, show every consideration for all men. That's a lot of imperatives, and those aren't suggestions. So how do we, how does the apostle Paul motivate us to do these things? Well, verse three, he says. First of all, remember who you were before Christ. He says, first, we were also foolish ourselves. We were disobedient. We were deceived. We were enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. We spent our life in malice and envy, hating, uh, hateful and hating one another. He says. So he says, remember who you were. You were just like these people. That i you to, you're not to be like it. And then he says, not only remember who you were, but remember whose you are now. Verse 4, he says, But when you are foolish and disobedient, you are deceived and you are enslaved and all of these things, we are hating and hateful. He says, In contrast, but when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, that being justified by his grace would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And so Paul just goes on this tangent in verses 4, 5, 6, and 7, with this Trinitarian, again, exposition of the gospel, reminding these creed believers of what, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit of done to conspire together in love to save them and to make them new uh, in Christ. And then he says, This is a trustworthy statement. This gospel is trustworthy. You can count on it. You can bank on it. And he says, So concerning these things, speak these things so that those who have believed God, look at this, he says, will be careful to engage in good works and so again you know how does paul motivate them to to obey these imperatives and to be careful to be devoted to good deeds he says never forget who you were apart from christ and remember whose you are now and what this trinitarian god has done for you um in the chief way that we as believers get motivated by this gospel to do that, and I've alluded to it a couple of times, is by coming to church. Uh, it's, through, it's, you know, it's through the means of grace, preaching word and sacrament and discipline, both formative and corrective, that the Holy Spirit uh, motivates us. He, he and he encourages us he he kills us with his law every week he raises us up again anew with his gospel every week he assures our hearts through the sacraments every week um, and that's in terms of piety um, evangelicalism really doesn't have these categories for the visible church and i i think that's you know maybe another day for ecclesiology but uh, the, the central role that the church plays in the believer's life of sanctification is crucial. And when believers uh, don't avail themselves fully uh, to the Lord's uh, visible church week after week, week you know, month after month, year after year of our lifetime, uh they are going to be hampered in their saint their 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 pursuit of a holiness. Their sanctification will be it'll be hindered because they're depriving themselves of the the gifts and the uh, ministry that God has given to actually help us live the Christian life and to uh, come to church, receive His gifts, and then scatter from the church in our, our various vocations uh, to love and serve our neighbor who needs our good our good works. And so I'd say, you know, go to church (laughs) and just make sure the church is giving you word sacrament faithfully, preaching Christ to you weekly over a lifetime.
1: Yeah. And I I wanted to say that anything that you mentioned um, today, as I'm editing, I'm going to put all of it in our episode notes. I know that I think on our last episode, you'd also recommended the Walter Marshall book, the um, Gospel Mystery of Sanctification, which is an excellent book. And I know that you've mentioned some Graham Goldsworthy resources. My mom reads more than anyone I know. And she says his trilogy is the best thing out there. So.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, yeah, it's great. She loves, yeah, yeah.
1: loves him so much. Uh, he's one of her favorite authors. So um, yeah, it, is there anything that you would like to say in closing before we end?
0: Oh, yeah. Well, thank you. I, I think I've said enough. <laughs> <laughs> um, I uh, No, I, let, me, let me just say this. I really appreciate uh, you calling and Rachel uh you're on my top three podcasts that i listen to uh constantly uh grateful for what you guys do or you gals do <laughs> i better said um it's just a blessing and uh yeah thanks for this opportunity i uh i was just uh praying before our podcast and just hoping that our time together could be helpful and minister to people when uh, you guys are doing a excuse me, you gals are doing a great uh, job, and I just say keep it up, and uh, yeah, I'm just very grateful to be a part of it, and so thank you for this opportunity.
1: Thanks, Thanks, John, and I know that your work and sermons and writing and all the stuff that you put out there has been a great encouragement to both of us, Um, very much, very much so. I I appreciate so much that constant reminder of the gospel. And I know that, you know, you were talking about people finding a good church that is preaching the gospel every week, preaching both law and gospel. Yes. And sometimes that's hard for people, you know, people sometimes struggle to find a good church that is doing that. Um, So I know that we get you know, messages all the time. Do you know of a good church in, you know, such and such area?
0: Yeah, I know. I get the same thing and I have people contact me on social media all the time. And I, um, I just say, look, if you can, if within two hours, I mean, three hours is getting a little bit too far, but you know, if you're, if you're at least two hours within driving distance of a faithful gospel self-consciously gospel preaching center church that gives you word and sacrament that is committed to grounding you and your family uh, in the faith. Uh, Go there. It's, it's worth it. Um, You know, in Jacksonville where our church is located, we we're in the biggest city in America for the terms of landmass, 635 square miles, just the city. Uh, And it's connected by seven bridges. We have people who are driving uh, north of our um, international airport, an hour north of there to come to our church. We have people coming from Palm Coast, which is about 65 miles south of us. is it's, it's an hour drive south of us. We have people coming from the west. We have people coming from the beach. Uh, we have people coming uh, from all areas of our city and beyond, beyond the bounds of our city. Uh, but the people will come because they know they're going to get Christ. And I just tell people all the time, you know, if, if, if you're, if it's at least two hours, it's worth it. Um, and if not, you know, pray, pray that God will bring a church planter, uh, reach out to uh, great schools like Westminster Seminary, California, and ask him for a church planter. <laughs> um, or if you're Lutheran with Rod Rosenblatt, call uh, 1517. Those guys are great. I'm not a Lutheran, but I love my Lutheran brothers, and I have more in common with a confessional Lutheran than an evangelical Anabaptist. <laughs> um, you know, or if, if you're looking for a, a good confessional Anglican Church, we would love to have you at Paramount Church. We, um, If you're looking for a, a good... Uh, for PCA church, you know, we have we have good guys around here for that. Basically what I'm just saying is is look, find if you if you can find a faithful church, you have you have found a life because that's you know, that is God When you say this evangelicals love to talk about the gospel but they don't love to talk about the administration of the gospel the gospel doesn't come to us in a vacuum Um, it's like like I tell our church you know if you're back in Noah's day you would have loved the administration of the gospel (laughs) you don't want to be on the other side of the ark you want to be in the ark Um, God made a promise, but if you're not inside the ark, you're in, you're in trouble. Um, the, the Reformed Confessions, the Belgian Confessions, very clear. The church is our mother. Um, and and it, the church carries us as pilgrims through this life, to our final home, which is the new heavens and the new earth, resurrection, new creation, which we confess each week in Holy Communion, the Nicene Creed. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. The church carries us. And, um, you know, to downplay the visible church is to misunderstand the gospel. Not because the gospel, you know, not because the church is the gospel, but because the the gospel creates the church and puts you into the church. Uh, Your baptism is initiation into Christ's visible church. And this is where Christ cares for you through the gifted ones that the ascended Christ has poured out for you from Ephesians 4. These are gifts. These are the gifts givers' gifts to you. Uh, And so let us not neglect the assembling of ourselves together. And So finding a good church, there's nothing. You know, if you find a good uh, gospel preaching church and faithful to give you the sacraments, all that, hang on to it because uh, it's, it's rare.
1: I, I appreciate that um, reminder, and you know, especially in a time where a lot of people don't see the importance of the visible church. Um well, yeah. John, we just thank you so much. I think this this was so helpful. I think it's going to be so helpful for our listeners because these are such important topics, and I think they're things talked about often and not understood always. And so I just appreciate you um taking this time to join us.
0: Great. Well, thank you. And, uh, thanks so much. It's it's great to be with you.